Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Society for Armenian Studies podcast. We have our guest today, uh, Dr. Unit Kurt, who is a Van Mier uh, Fellow uh, and is a historian of the late Ottoman Empire with a particular focus on the transformations of the imperial structures and their role in constituting the Republican regime in Turkey. Uh, Dr. Kurt completed his dissertation in the Department of History at Clark University, and since then he has held a number of postdoctoral positions in the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Harvard University and Armenian Studies Program at California State University of Fresno. And as I have said, he is currently a research fellow at Polonsky Academy in the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute and teaching in the Department of Islamic and Middle Eastern Studies at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And today we have him as a guest and we would be happy to uh, talk and discuss his recent book, uh, The Armenians of Eintop, Economics of Genocide in an Ottoman Province, uh, that has been published by Harvard University Press this year. And first of all, uh, thank you, Amit, for accepting our invitation and congratulations on your recent book. It's a pleasure to have you on the Society for Armenian Studies podcast. So um, let's just start with the kind of background of, of the book, the your kind of personal history, because as I've been reading the introduction and some parts of the book, it seems that there is a personal story interwoven with the uh, academic scholarship that you present in, in this book. So can you just kind of briefly tell us what's the personal story behind the book? How did you start um, doing this research? Because as a, as a native of Eintab yourself, it seems that you have more kind of personal insights and personal stories to share rather than uh, just a kind of a scholarly um, interest or a scholarly um, inter enterprise. Thank you so much, Dear Varak. Thank you for having me. Um, following my graduation from Middle East Technical University in Ankara in 2007, I found myself again at my parents' house in my hometown of Gaziantep, formerly known as Aintab. Uh, one day, I was jarred from my nap by a call from an old friend. I mean, where have you been? Has been ages. I know a great place in Kayacik where we can catch up. Although uh, I was born and raised in Aintab and had not left the city until college, the word Kayajik did not mean anything to me. It was just another district in the city, a neighborhood I had never visited and knew nothing, literally. She said she would wait for me at Papyrus Cafe and gave me directions. I took a bus to the Kayajik neighborhood and upon arrival found myself dazed by the charming atmosphere, letting myself get lost in the side streets and leaving my poor friend waiting some more. I was on a narrow street with beautifully constructed stone houses lining each side, taking me back to a simpler, though slightly mysterious time. Um, so tuck away between the high-rise concrete apartment buildings of modernized Gaziantep, this neighborhood was like an architectural mirage for me. I felt nostalgic for a past that was never mine. So finally, I found Papyrus Cafe, which turned out to be located in one of those exotic houses. Like most of the houses on the street, it had been converted into a, into a coffee shop as part of the process of restoring the city. Upon entering, a few ladders carved at the top of the majestic gate caught my eye. Uh, not recognizing the secret script, I simply assumed these were Ottoman characters. Inside, I was once more left speechless. 
a spacious courtyard with staircases on either side leading up to, to, to two large rooms welcomed me. The rooms were filled with antique furnishings and the high ceilings were adorned with frescoes and engravings similar to Florentine cathedrals. So uh, I decided to talk to the owner to try to glean some information about the history of the house. And he verily explained that he inherited this place from his grandfather. And then it must have been especially strong coffee they were serving that day as I was emboldened to press further. And I asked him, how about your grandfather? From whom he, did he buy this place? The man paused hesitantly before responding. And then after a few moments, he softly murmured to the ground beneath him. There were Armenians here, he said. I said, what Armenians? What are you talking about? Were there Armenians in Gaziantep? He nodded. I was getting annoyed with the, actually the opacity of his answer. So I asked what happened to them? Where did they go? He retorted indifferently. Again, they left. So as I rode the bus back home, I ponder why Armenians, why anyone would just leave and hand over such an exquisite property to someone. So I was a naive to the point of ignorant 22-year-old university graduate, unaware of the existence of Armenians in my hometown. So a few years later, I would find out that the house belonged to the Nazar Nazaretian, honorary consulate to Iran, who was a member of the Aintab's wealthies and most prominent family. And he, his children and his grandchildren used to live in this house. And those letters above the gate were not Ottoman, but Armenian, spelling out the sur surname of Karanazar uh, the Black Nazar, uh, who built the house. So this is the story about how the idea to work on this topic and uh, write a book out of it uh, emerged. Oh, th thank you, Amit. That's a, that's a pretty fascinating and also interesting story. And we, we read that in the preface of your book. But if we try to kind of shift the discussion to the kind of scholarly merits of, of the book, how would you characterize kind of the recent developments on on the research on on the Armenian genocide? What are what are some of the recent trends, and how would you kind of situate your work within these new emerging trends? Um, bulk of the work on the Armenian genocide, let's say, including revisionist and critical ones, have sought to pro prove the genocide brought numerous evidences from different archives and materials in order to demonstrate that what had happened to Armen Ottoman Armenians during the World War I was really genocide. Okay. My work goes beyond this documentation-based history writing somehow a, a historic understanding which is deprived of a nuance and, and, and analytical historical methodology. As a historian, to me, our primary work is to discuss and explore, explore various aspects or dimensions of the Armenian genocide as a mass, mass violence event by situating it within the late Ottoman history context or framework. So most of the studies of the Armenian genocide and more generally of violence in Anatolia miss local dimensions and focus on grand politics and machinations within the Union and Committee of Union and Progress, ruling government at that time, who executed and orchestrated the genocide. My book has the potential to change thoroughly the way we understand this incident, incident and provide new insights on local agency and the role of local societies in perpetuation of this 
atrocity. In this sense, this book brings back the notion of class, which has experienced in eclipse in recent years in genocide studies. It shows that the economic and political ideological interests of perpetrators, the gentry, different sectors of the urban population and ordinary Muslims, did overlap in the process of Armenian persecution and that the intersection of these two interests determined the momentum and intensity of the, of the violence. In this regard, the case of Aintab suggests that Turkish Republic cannot be fully grasped without taking into consideration the concept of class. Again, the Armenian genocide was much more complicated than the outcome of a simple top-down decision-making process in which the CUP leadership assigned and forced and oversaw exterminationist policies while local Muslims acted as passive, indifferent bystanders. That was, that, is the, that was the understanding which, you know, has been predominant within the existing state of art uh, so far. My work asserts that the relationship between central power and regional local authorities was not only one-directional and hierarchical. Instead, I showed that regional offices and the central authority have mutually influenced uh, each other. In that sense, I consider my work to be an integral addition to the late Ottoman and early Republican scholarship for two reasons. First, it addresses the key questions of the period. Second, it does so by offering a radical shift in approaching this uh, questions, I would say. So just for the sake of clarity, when you say class, do you mean class among the Armenians of Antap or among the Muslims or the Armenians? There is a difference in terms of ethnicity, religion, as well as class. So maybe just if you can expand more on the, on mm-hmm. the concept of class and how it plays into your story, that would be, that would be more interesting. I am using the, the concept uh, of, of class uh, 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 within the framework of local Muslim elites. I, I, I basically analyze how these local elites, these Aintab gentry, became, uh, became a, upper middle, a middle upper class or you know, upper class and how they became a bourgeois uh, in the early Republican period and how also they consolidated their class, you know, uh, structure, uh, how they consolidated their, you know, wealth and richness, uh, which rely on the property and the assets of Armenians. So that's why I analyzed this process in three periods from 1915 through 1918, and then the period between 1918 and 1921, and the third period, which I call the consolidation of the class power and the class structure of the local elites, local Muslim gentry in Aintab, is the period uh, after 1920s in the Republican era. Okay, so maybe uh, kind of uh, continuing on what you said on the gentry and the local kind of elites, you focus much on them, on the notables, on the CUP officials in Antep, as well as the kind of larger Muslim population. Uh, and you clearly kind of show how each one of these kind of groups participated and organized the plunder and annihilation of the local Armenian population in, in Antep. Can you tell us the career of the of few of these, of, of these men and how they got involved in this, what you call the economy of 
of genocide or the economics of plunder? Sure. Uh, first of all, the CUP relied to a considerable extent on the cooperation of the local administrations and elites, political institutions, and ordinary citizens in Aintab. On the economic side, the prospect of loot incentivized local collaborators to support massacres and deportations. Realizing the potential, the CUP leadership deliberately instrumentalized the promise of spill and plunder. Why? To cajole public participation. Central government was well aware of the fact that provincial notables, local landowners and bigwigs, officials and a range of other people with vested interests try to take possession of our main wealth. So these actors found themselves in a fortuitous position. Not only did their actions fulfill the ideological requirements of the regime, but these actions also brought material gain in the form of expropriated and pillaged Armenian properties. This factor in combination served to catalyze further the persecution of Armenians. Therefore, a reward mechanism was created by the CUP, which uh, it could draw political and social support for decisions to deport and massacre Armenians. So the profiters justify their confiscation and seizure of Armenian wealth, not as a robbery or plunder, but as fair reward for their participation in the elimination of harmful and treacherous elements in their eyes, for sure. So houses, fields, lands, vineyards, orchards and estates, along with other properties that Armenians were forced to leave behind, they were sold, they, they were sold for every, uh, very low prices by auctions organized by the Gaziantep municipality in 1920s, for instance. Many prominent families enlarged their fortunes by purchasing these assets at ridiculous prices. Some of these individuals were Abdullah Göğüş, Daizade Mahmud, Kepkepzade Mustafa, and Abdullah, Mayor Lütfi Efendi, Attarzade Abdullah, Bakalzade Ali, and so on and so forth. Among these individual buyers, Daizade Mahmud is of particular interest, I would say. As a member of a leading wealthy Ainta family, he served as the chairman of Gaziantep Chamber of Commerce from 1921 to 1924. In 1923, he purchased Garabet Nazaretyan's house, which was put up for sale by the Gaziantep municipality. The deceased Garabet Nazaretyan's daughters, who held Iranian citizenship, objected to this sale through the Iranian embassy. Uh, thereupon, the embassy sent an oral notice to the Istanbul office of the Foreign Affairs Commissariat of the Turkish Grand National Assembly on February 5th, 1923. So the embassy requested a halt of the sale of the property of the deceased Garabet's daughters and because the seal procedures, according to the Iranian embassy, was illegal. And the property in question had to be returned to its real owners. But despite this protest, the sale transaction was realized. A former employee of the Nazaretyan family, interestingly enough, Daizade Mahmud became an affluent merchant and used this house as a mansion until it was donated to military to be used as a gendarmerie station in 1965. After the departure of military forces in 1967, the Daizade family sold the house to its current owner, Abdul Qadir Kimyazade. Another person or local elite was Ali Janani Bey, uh, 
who was elected as parliamentary deputy for Aleppo and remained in the Ottoman parliament until its closure following the British occupation of Istanbul in 1920. So Ali Cenani Bey was intimate with Talat Pasha and very close to his faction in the Central Committee of the CUP. He already came from one of the most prominent and affluent families of Aintab as was, and was among the leading provincial elite. Um, he supervised and actively participated in the deportations of Armenians, the confiscation and depredation of their property, as well as massacres in, in the city in 1915 and 1918. He was one of the major proponents of the decision to deport the Aintab Armenians as well. And he and his accomplices sent letters to Istanbul, for instance, inventing charges uh, against Armenians because his intention was to mark Armenians as a harmful element by having this false charge confirmed and thus legitimized. So uh, during the armistice peri- p- period, you know, uh, he was uh, held in custody by the British and then sent to Malta uh, on November 24, 1920. And then when he came back from Malta uh, and he ended up in Ankara, joined the national forces and again elected as a parliamentary deputy in the Grand National Assembly. And he was the one who became the first minister of commerce in the Turkish, in, in Turkish Republic uh, as well. So maybe just a kind of a follow-up question on these elites. Would it be correct to assume that most of these elites who participated and organized the kind of the uh, deportation and annihilation of Armenians from Aintep were already coming from rich families? So maybe that's one group of the elites who enriched themselves more after the plunder of their properties, of the Armenian properties, And maybe we do have another group of local officials who may not have been very rich at that time, but who became actually the new elite after taking over the Armenian properties. Is it, would it be correct to actually distinguish these two groups? Exactly. It's, it's, it's a very, very important actually uh, point, a remark, because these elites, the already rich elites, affluent elites, uh, they by acquiring these properties and and also other movable and immovable assets, they enrich their wealth, their already wealth. But there were also other groups of middle or lower middle elites, let's say, or would be elites, let's say. Um, they were the ones who show who were more enthusiastic and eager to deport. Uh, and join the massacres, especially in the deportation roads, in return for obtaining these, you know, properties or these wealth of the Aintap Armenians, who were their neighbors, actually. Even these, you know, small groups, they, com- they, uh, they founded a-, a special committee, ended up in Derzor in order to see the situation and conditions under, uh, of Armenians when they became sure that they would, they won't be, they wouldn't be able to return, and they wouldn't be able to uh, ma- make the make make the deportation and survive. Uh, once they became sure, they came back to city and then start plundering and also, you know, liquidating the assets and properties of those deported Armenians. The real uh, fight 
class fight, let's say, between uh, already rich local elites and the would-be elites of Aintab started once the Armenians of Aintab left the city for good in 1922 and 1923. Because uh, these would-be elites uh, asked and claimed and demanded more properties to acquire because they believed that they were the real forces behind the annihilation of Armenians and they deserve more vis-a-vis rich elites, you know, already rich elites. The real fight, the real class struggle between these two groups started over uh, over, uh, uh, having the lion's share of these extermination. Mm -hmm. So you kind of touched upon some some of the aspects I'm going to ask about in the previous question, but there's some kind of reconciliation between in your work between the ideological motives of, of a genocide uh, or the perpetrators with the economic incentives of those who actually participated in the massacres, in the deportations on the actual ground. So uh, briefly uh, about the kind of mass Muslim population of Aintab who, who was participating in, in that process. So how did these elites actually mobilize the local population in 1915? And how did this kind of economic motive play out on the ground? Because you mentioned some examples of how, let's say, Ali Janani Bey uh, reported to Talat and the CUP Central Committee about the kind of the treacherous role of the Armenians. But that's a kind of a channel between the CUP Central Committee and let's say Ali Janani Bey. So how did, for example, Ali Janani Bey and people like him mobilize the mass population in Antep? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go back to history then. Uh, as early as March 1915, the leaders of the Antep CUP branch, okay, led by Ali Janani, the district parliamentary deputy, Fadl Bey, the former district governor of Kilis, and Haji Mustafa Bey, a prominent Kilis notable. They began taking advantage of the incidents in Zeytun and Marash to depict Aintab's own Armenians as a harmful element. The CUP, these CUP leaders repeatedly appealed to Istanbul, hoping to obtain a deportation order for the Armenians of Aintab and Kilis. The appeal was uh, thwarted. However, by Mehmet Şükrü Bey, Aintab's district governor, and Hilmi Bey, uh, Aintab military commander, even though both men as Armenian survivors also noted were themselves unions. The military commander simply informed the central government that there was no valid reason for deportation. Other Armenians in the district, like Kirkor Boarian and Sebu Aguri, for instance, confirmed uh, this picture of Mehmet Şükrü Bey and Hilmi Bey's opposition to deportation as well. But not daunted by this official opposition, these three Aintab notables, Ali Janani, Fadl Bey, and, 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 and Haji Mustafa Bey, uh, these three Aintab elites, with assistance of their Marash counterparts, organized provocations. They sent telegrams to central government claiming that Aintab Armenians had attacked mosques with weapons, killed Muslims, raped Muslim women, burned down Muslim houses, and plundered their property. Let me give you an example. In the village of Beşgöz, 
between this this village was situated between Aintab and Kilis. The people of the village were discussing the looming onset of the deportation in Aintab. After a while, a well-dressed gentleman by his appearance, a Circassian, for instance, wearing partly civilian and partly officer's clothing, joined the people and inquired from uh, which part of the town people would live, which road they will take, what kind of people it will be, and what one could possibly pilfer from these people. When one of those present asked him if he was a civilian or a member of the military, uh, this Sarkazian guy in his appearance grinned slyly and questioned rhetorically, is there, a, is there, is there a, a, a more opportune moment to be a soldier than the present one? So when we look at the motivations, we should actually uh, look at it, you know, um, case by case, episode by episode. For instance, motivations of local elites uh, were different from the those of uh, ordinary civilians, ordinary Muslim civilians, Kurds, Turks, Arab, and so on and so forth. Local elites who were the leading forces behind the deportation or creating the atmosphere for deportation were the ones who provoke, who organize provocations and to, to play out ideological and religious motives, galvanize ordinary civilians, you know, by using religion, by using ideology, ethno uh, Turkish ethnic nationalism and so on and so forth. But for them, their motivations were uh, entirely, uh, not entirely, but mostly and overwhelmingly economic. So that's why in order to, you know, determine the, the nature of the motivations of these different groups, we should look at them one by one. And also these motivations uh, change and vary from, t uh, from time to time as well. So they were not fixed uh, motivations we are talking about. I mean, uh, another kind of major thread that you, in a way, weave throughout the text is that there seems to be a continuity between the Hamidian the CUP and the Kemalist eras in terms of the notables of the Aintep and their relation to Armenian property or to the Armenian mm -hmm. population. What were some of the major debates during the Kemalist Republican period in terms of the Armenian property? And how did these perpetrators uh, that, you named some, uh, that you named some actually adapt to the Republican regime as far as the situation in Aintep was concerned? These perpetrators and their families profited from the genocide to the extent that after 1923, entire generations were educated and provided for uh, by the starting capital of Armenian property acquired in 1915. In other words, the elimination of the Armenians uh, paved the way for the rise of a new upper class in Gaziantep. For instance, while the reports published in 1914 edition of uh, Annual Oriental, it clearly showed that it clearly shows that Armenians from the region controlled all aspects of the economic and business life. The 1925 and 28th editions of the Gaziantep Chamber of Commerce Yearbook confirmed that no non-Muslim merchants remain in the city. So that is the ramification of this total destruction of a population, a community in a city. Until the mid-1940s, 
the influence of Muslim elites over the city continued. The mayors of the city for the years 1921-1950 all came from the same influential families who, were, who actively participated in the destruction of Armenians. These elites dominated the industry and the economy of Gaziantep in 1930s and 40s. And most of these men were members of the Republican People's Party and representatives of the party's branch in Aintab. So as you see, economic and political privileges, you know, intersect, intermesh. Economic privileges also brought political representation to these people. Therefore, Republican regime linked to its CUP predecessor through persecutory economic policy, personnel, and ideology. For instance, Armenian assets such as shops, estates, the houses in the neighborhoods, Armenian neighborhoods like Kozanlı, Körkün, Eblahan, Ibrahimli, Sazgın, Tepebaşı, and so forth, they began to be sold at rigged auctions to the members of those prominent families for very low prices in post-genocide Turkey. And their real estate was auctioned by dealers associated with the Gaziantep Revenue Office. So, uh, auctions were preceded by newspaper announcement about the details of the sales in question, listing the approximate location, type and value in liras of the properties in question, and most important, their previous owners. But with no reference to the state that state that had acquired the properties and was their current owner. So this new rich of Gaziantep were not only influential figures in the national resistance and the Republican period, but also emerged as the new captains of the industry in the city. That's why the economic elite of Aintab was being reconstituted along political lines. Okay, a new political class based on such qualifications as previous CUP service, their eagerness in the Turkish-French war, and the political reliability as Republicans was able through its acquisition of Armenian wealth, was able to lay the economic foundations that would sustain its status over generations, long after World War I and its aftermath were only uh, a, a memory. Okay, kind of one kind of final question that is about the current situation in Aintab. Is there still a quote-unquote Armenian ghost haunting the city? Or what is the current status of Armenian property in mm-hmm. the city? What are some of the ways by which the Turkish Republican officials silence the Armenian past of many of the state mm-hmm. properties that you meticulously uh, described and mm-hmm. um, listed in your book mm-hmm. yes there is still an Armenian ghost haunting the city of Aintab for instance when you visit Kayacik or Beymahalesi which used to be an Armenian neighborhood you can uh, see feel sense traces of Armenians under every single storm okay because vis-a-vis cities in the western Armenia, our main neighborhood, along with its buildings, house, architecture, and so forth, it's relatively well preserved in Aintab. As for the current status of our main property in the city, to answer this question exactly, we need to employ archives of land registry cadastre. 
as you may guess, these archives are inaccessible to researchers. Nevertheless, in my book, as you have pointed out, I listed and documented trajectory and current status of ownership of more than 400 locations, which amount to more than 400, more than 400 immobile assets of properties. Okay. I used a map of city drawn by Kevork Avedis Sarafian in 1951 and pinpointed more than 400 locations and show the kind of the property in question, who was the original owner and the next owners over the course of time. And uh, last but not least, the current owner as well. So, but in the book, of course, because of the page limitation, I only use the 50, uh, 50 uh, locations among this more than 400 ones. But of course, again, I would like to underline to have a clear cut information about this issue. What we need is records available in the title deeds archives. By the way, this four, more than 400 locations, which I pinpointed in Kayajik and Beymaha, let's say, there were, they are mostly boutique hotels, coffee shops, business places, private houses, you know, like antique houses, they name it, and so on and so forth. To silence the past of many of these assets throughout the Republican era, abandoned property transactions were carried out, again, according to the uh, liquidation laws and regulations, which were, which were promulgated during the Republican era on uh, April 15, 1923. Uh, the, here, the dominant, logic, the dominant logic of the CUP era was maintained in these uh, laws and regulations. For instance, from 1922 to 1928, some of the houses that belonged to Armenians were used for charitable purposes, distributed at no charge by the state, and the Aintab municipal authority to Muslim families who had lost their own dwellings during the Turkish-French war. Abandoned houses and estates of Armenians were still being used to settle migrants and refugees. Okay, And another example in the immediate aftermath of the Turkish-French war, for instance, large Armenian houses were looted by prominent and affluent local elites without any legal repercussions. According to local sources, for instance, Ali Api obtained Garush Karamanukyan's big house in 1924. After changing hands a few times, the building was bought and restored by Hassan Suze, a businessman from Aintab, and in 1985, donated to Minister of Culture and Tourism on the condition that it will serve as Hassan Suzer Ethnography uh, Museum. Uh, another example, the buildings of Atenagan School and Sur Petros Yegretsi, for instance, the second Catholic church in the city. These buildings were passed on to the national estate, Milli Emlak, after Armenians had to vacate the, the city. Later, these buildings were turned into village thread and weaving, fact, uh, weaving, weaving factory in 1933 and given to Cemil Alevli, a, a young native of Aintab, by a special order of Mustafa Kemal as part of the effort to create a class of entrepreneurs and capitalists in the city. I can continue and I gave, uh, you know, a, a, a huge details about how these properties were, were distributed to whom and what purposes and so on and so forth. But these uh, the, the the silence of armenians regarding these properties were carried out through 
so-called legal rules and regulations. All transactions were carried out under the, under the veneer of legality. So, and these laws and regulations were known as abundant property laws. And these legal, so-called legal procedures continue uh, 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 until late 1980s in Turkey. Thank you. Thank you, Emit, for that fascinating as well as moving talk. Um, once again, our speaker today was Dr. Emit Kurt. And thank you all for listening to Society for Armenian Studies podcast. Thank you so much for having me again.